0: Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the During Galatians chapter four again this morning. I'm gonna read it's a rather lengthy passage from chapter four, verse twelve through verse twenty. But we hear the, the heart of a passionate pastor in our apostle Paul. Galatians 4, verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless the proclamation of your holy word, that you would teach us, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us the energy to seek out these things to meditate upon them and to learn of you and to walk in them as in a manner worthy of our calling as Christ ones. And so we ask that you would do these things again. We ask for the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a difficult passage to follow. We've had a number of difficult passages in Galatians And as I read some of the commentaries on this section, not all agree that this section is a section that holds together. And some gave these comments, if I could. Uh, One commented that in this passage there is, quote, no easily discerned structure. Another one said, a neat logical sequence is difficult to find. Of verse 13, someone said, Determining what Paul means by the weakness of the flesh is very difficult. Identifying the physical problem has been a long-standing and ultimately insolvable puzzle. Of verse 17, one wrote, It is intricately complex. And in verse 18, he wrote, it's even more difficult. But I believe that this passage, 12 through 20, does stick together. The 25-cent word would be it's the pericope. It's the section that you're supposed to take as a unit that sticks together as a logical thought. It's bracketed, I believe, in verse 12 by the, the phrase, I beg of you, brethren, there, there's that pastorly tone in Paul. My, my brothers, my fellow Christians. And in verse 19, my children, or in the Greek, it comes across my little children or my dear children. There's a tenderness there. there there's, there's something in the heart of the apostle, uh, a passion, and he shares with them a personal appeal and and some of you you may be like me i I grew up in the teaching that I had it was you know paul is he's always logical, he's always reasonable he he and his his logic is impeccable, and he is um as peter said you know sometimes very difficult to understand and and we kind of think of paul as um perhaps being like my background, Germanic background, we're supposed to be stoic and we're supposed to you know, not show the emotions. And we kind of have the idea that Paul never really shows his emotions, doesn't wear them on his sleeve. And, and yet he does. This is a personal appeal to the Galatian Christians that, that is described as a pathos. And, and what that is is when the speaker seeks to move the audience On the basis of their emotions and upon the shared experience that they had together. And we sometimes think, well, Christianity is not like that. It's facts. You know, it's it's on Christ and the resurrection. Yes, it is. And faith follows facts. But you've heard that, you know, faith has to follow facts. But what should follow faith? It's feeling. If, if we have no emotion, if we have nothing inside of us, nothing that is that inner fire, then I, I would question where's the faith? When I was in college, one of my summer jobs was construction, and I wasn't very good at it because I didn't like heights and one day i was I was asked to and I don't know why, but it was a 12 or 14 foot cinder block wall. And it w- there was nothing filling in the top of the wall. But I had to walk on the top of the wall because there was no ladder available and go down there and grout something in 20 feet down the line. And when I think about this idea of fact or faith following fact and feeling following faith, I think about that wall. That if, if your faith is following fact, then you're fine. You know how to walk, and feeling follows faith. But as the saying goes, if faith looks back at feeling, he's going to fall off the wall. If faith is following feeling, if it's only the emotions, then there's no grounding. But Paul is saying and again, I liked what one of the commentators said. What God has joined together, do not rend asunder. Feelings follow faith. Ought to, they ought to be together. The emotion and the relationship between them. And, and so what, what Paul is saying is, I, you know, I, I, I'm making an appeal. In fact, we, we have here the first imperative in Galatians. Chapter 4, um, Paul, again, as his custom, there, there, he outlines theology and doctrine, but he, he always follows or weaves it in more often with the theology is an appeal, is an, is an exhortation to, to do these things. And he's saying, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I have become as you are. He's asking them to look at their past, as we saw in the passage last week. Look at, and he appeals to the mind in verse 9. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And then he says in verse 11, But I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. He made an appeal to their mind. This is what you know. This is what you experienced. But now what he's looking at is their relationship with him. He's making an appeal to their emotions. In verse 15, where is that sense of the blessing that you had? Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? There's a a pathos here. There is an emotion here that he is trying to appeal to in their heart. Now, I'm not sure, and Again, it's very difficult to understand when he says in verse 12, I beg of you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. But I believe in the context of Galatians, the entire book, the emphasis on the law, he is saying, I have become like you, as you are not under the law, so I am not under the law. Remember, most of these Christians were Gentiles. They were not born under the law of Moses. They did not know the law of Moses. And I think he is saying, I have become as you are, not under the law. I'm no longer under the dominion of the law, but as he says later on in the book, I am under the dominion of Christ. My existence, as your existence was, is not determined by the law, but by Christ as he moves on to when we move to chapter 5. So here we have a situation where the apostle is appealing to them on the basis of their shared experiences. And we don't know a lot about what this bodily illness is. And there, as the phrase goes, a lot of ink has been spilled to try to understand what the bodily condition or illness is. Many link it back to what uh, he says in 2 Corinthians 12 about his uh, thorn in the flesh. Others conjecture that he, as he was moving from the Mediterranean area to uh, in his, his uh, missionary journeys that he had malaria. Some say that because they were, he uses the phrase you were willing to pluck out your eyes for me that he had some kind of eye problem. I don't think it's worth going into those things, quite frankly, because if you think about Paul and his missionary journeys, uh, particularly if you read in 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 6, and chapter 11, you read all kinds of things that happened to him bodily. He says, we were afflicted in every way. We were persecuted, we were struck down, we were constantly being delivered over to death. We had beatings, we had imprisonments, we had shipwrecks. He had all of these things going on. He, he, he had more ailments than you can name. He had more things happen to him than happens to most of us in our entire lives over the course of his missionary adventures. But what we do know is the providence of God brought him a physical problem because notice the wording. He says in verse 13, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Why Paul's problem led him to preach to the Galatians, we don't know. Perhaps it was to change his travel plans. Uh, We know that God did that in other places, right? He wanted to go across to one region and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're going to a different place. We know that God can do those things, but we know from what he says, it was the reason why he preached there. And I think we need to be very careful when we think of the provenance of God. As my daughter-in-law said a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about one subject, she said, you have to be careful. It can be a tricky thing. We like to think that we know what God is doing. We like to think that we know, oh, you know, we we use that, and I've heard it from celebrities. Um, Unfortunately, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, and what did the athletes say? Well, everything happens for a reason. Well, it does, because God is sovereign over all things. But do we have to make it so trite? Do we have to make it? I mean, they have, as far as I can tell, listening through the radio, no connection to the God of the universe, who is the Lord of lords and King of kings and orchestrates all these things. When they use that phrase, things happen for a reason. Do they? Yes, they do. But it is no excuse to trifle with the providence of God in the leading of his people. He brings things about for his glory and honor, does he not? Whether in sickness or in health, he brings these things. I have not read the book, but it's an intriguing type, title that John Piper wrote. Don't waste your cancer. There are times when I think we need to go back and read about Paul and the bodily things that happened to him, the thorn in the flesh. Because does he elaborate on it? Does he go through all the medical? No, what he says is to God, thy grace is sufficient for me. It's what God said to him, actually. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. So yes, does God use illness to bring glory to himself? Yes. Does he use your health to bring glory to himself? Yes. Things happen for a reason. We don't need to know, I believe in this case, all what was behind it. But we do know that Paul preached the gospel. And we, we know that they received it gladly, and, and he says, you know, my, my bodily condition, verse 14, the, could have been a trial, a temptation to you. His, he was afraid that his physical appearance may have caused them to reject him and therefore reject his gospel. But, but they didn't. They, they listened to the gospel and we know that they responded to that. They might have viewed Paul's physical condition, as many in that day did, that if you had particularly unsightly physical ailments, they thought you were demon-possessed. And he uses the word here, loathing. You did not despise me or loathe me. Literally, it means you didn't spit me out. The idea of turning aside, and we still use that. You know, I'm a baseball fan. They spit for no reason at all. But on the football field, when they don't like the referee's call, what do they do? They spit. And it's a sign of saying, ah, I, I reject that. I despise what you just did. And, and this, that's the idea that he's saying here. But you didn't turn aside and spit. You didn't loathe me. You didn't hold me in contempt. Instead, what did they do? It's astounding. He said, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. Now, it sounds at first, you know, a little blasphemous, doesn't it? And yet we see the emotion, we see the way that they received Paul. We see how they, when they received the gospel and received the messenger of God through the apostle that they regarded him as this is something wonderful. This is something necessary for us. Paul reminds them of these things, and he says, Think about this time. Think about what happened when I delivered the gospel to you, but what is their current state? Verse 16, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? Where then is that sense of blessing? Now there are those who believe that Paul is talking about the Galatians' spiritual state, their state of joy and rejoicing in the message, rejoicing in the gospel being delivered in the region of Galatia. But the verb that is used there, the word for the joy or the congratulatory feeling there is different than it. used used for joy or sense of happiness that we see in other parts of Scripture. And so, again, it's somewhat surprising for Paul, but I don't think he's talking about their spiritual state as being blessed or happy, but the blessing that they, the Galatians, pronounce on Paul. Where is the sense of joy that you gave me? The blessing that you gave me? The congratulatory feeling that you gave to me? Because well, notice the nature of that blessing. That they were willing to pluck out even their own eyes and give them to Him. It's a metaphor. We still use it, don't we not? I, I I wish you know I'd give you my right arm, or uh, if I could pluck out my own eyes and give them to you, I would. This is how they had regarded him, and now he's saying, but something's changed. There's something something has happened here. Your self-sacrificing love displayed by this kind of speech is missing. It's, it's gone something has changed. He says, therefore, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. It sums up the situation, but he doesn't mean just simply telling the truth. We, we, again, we kind of trivialize that, do we not? We, and we use Ephesians 4, I think, out of context. You know, speaking the truth in love. It's not, you know, I've heard people abuse that. Well, I know I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, so I'm just going to tell you to face, I really don't like you. That's not what Paul means in Ephesians 4, and it's not what he means here. What is the truth that he told them? What is the truth that he proclaimed to them but the truth of the gospel? If we look back at chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 5, but we did not... Yield in subjection to them, meaning the agitators, for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. In verse 14 of that same chapter, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I talked to Cephas about these things. His emphasis on, is on the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel, The truth that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But what does he mean is that that truth of the gospel is is not just a fact that stands alone, but it is in you, it is part of you, it is lived out in your life. You live by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul is willing to fight for this even if it means losing the friendship of those in Galatia. As John Stott wrote, we cannot be selective with the truth of God. We sometimes do that with the word, do we not? We, we, we buy the word on the cafeteria plan. We go down the row. oh, I like some of this, some of this, I don't want that. I don't want to accept these things. And Paul referring to himself as an enemy, have I become your enemy, is perhaps that the agitators, those who would call the Galatian believers to follow the law of Moses, to be circumcised, to do these things, the formalism that we spoke of previously, perhaps they were calling Paul the enemy. Why? Why? because they wanted to convince the Galatians that Paul's gospel was defective, that his law-free gospel was wrong, that they, he didn't get it right. We see here, and again, the sense I get is, he says that they were zealous. Uh, verse 17, they eagerly seek you. They are zealous to win you over. But Paul says, be careful, Because there is a zealous zealous attitude that's for the good. It's commendable. But he says here, it's not commendable. Here, it's not honorable. It's dishonorable. Why would they try to do this? The, The word is, they wish to shut you out. They wish to exclude you. Okay, But what does it mean? Not that the agitators say, we don't want you, Galatians. What they wanted to do was isolate the Galatians. They wanted to shut you out, not from, but shut them out to Paul. They wanted to keep them away from Paul and his influence and particularly his gospel. Why? So they would attach themselves to the agitators. The thought that came to my mind, and I I believe that's what's operating here, is these tactics of those who, in Paul's words, would shut you out or seek you. They're techniques of the cults. I did a little reading, and it's painful because I lived through reading the newspapers about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians reading about Jerry Jones and taking his cult to where is it, Guyana? And them and this is where we get the phrase that you hear so often: "Drinking the poison Kool-Aid." They literally did that. What is the tactic? Is to isolate you from your family, isolate you from your friends, isolate you from those whose views differ with their own. They monitor and restrict contact with outsiders. And what is the phrase that they use? They're the enemy. Paul, the phrase that Paul has used here. They control what you read, what you think, what you do. They control the views that you're supposed to hold. And what does it do? Well, it takes away freedoms, does it not? Freedom, of your association, freedom to travel, freedom to live where you want, freedom to pursue life pursuits as you wish. Why? To cut you off, to shut you out, to isolate you from those who would teach what they would call a different gospel so that you would become entirely dependent upon them. And again, I don't know, it is a difficult passage, but when I see Paul using that kind of language, have I become your enemy? Have I become like one that they would shut you out from? It speaks to me of Paul, this fear he speaks of in verse 11, I fear for you, again, is more than just, I don't really know what to do with you folks. I fear for you. I fear for your salvation. I fear for your walk. I fear for the truth. Is it in you? But what is Paul's heart? He does say in verse 18, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. It sounds like he's egotistical, but I don't think so. I think it is always good that those who have honorable intentions that you would be courted, but here you're being courted by dishonorable reasons. Remain constant to me, he's saying, even when I'm not with you. Why? Because his cause, my cause, the gospel, is always honorable it is never dishonorable Paul never strays from the word of truth Paul knows that he's anchored in the word of God that his preaching was not in his own power but in the power of God that again God's grace was sufficient for him and what does God add in that passage in 2nd Corinthians 12 my power is made perfect in your weakness. First Corinthians chapter four, Paul says, let a man regard us as stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he goes on to say that which ought to echo in the heart of every man who would be a pastor. It is first required of students, stewards that they be found trustworthy. Paul says, I have been trustworthy because I know Whom I believe, but I know the gospel. I know that my message is trustworthy. He goes on to say later in 2 Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. They seek you for dishonorable means. I seek (laughs) you for commendable means. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because What did he say to the Corinthians? I betrothed you to Christ. I betrothed you to one, to Christ. And he can stand firmly on that. Even if it means losing their friendship, losing their trust in him, he's going to stand on that word. Because what is his ultimate goal? Why does he address them in verse 19? My little children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. It's a direct appeal to them. I, I could be in labor again, suffering the pains of childbirth, I once proclaimed the gospel to you, he says, and I went through the hopes and the dreams and the suffering and the pain so that you would be born again in Christ, that you would be regenerated, that you would have that new birth. And now, now he's saying, I I feel those pains, that I ought to have those pains of childbirth again. I would be in that position all over again. And it doesn't mean that he would gladly say, you know, let's let's do it again. It's a rebuke. He's saying, "I, I birthed you in Christ. I went through those labor pains. I suffered. But now I'm suffering again because you're not walking in the truth. You're listening to false doctrine. You're following error. You're you're going on the wrong path. And I'm suffering again those same kind of pains when I had you, when I birthed you in Christ. And then Paul does a Paulism. He switches the metaphor to the Galatians. It is not what's forming in him. It's what's forming in them is what he is after. He is saying to the Galatians that I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Douglas Moo writes, the imagery suggests that Paul will not be content until Christ so dominates their lives that there can be no possible change from a settled spiritual state. Doesn't that sound like a dad? Doesn't it sound like a father? I will keep laboring, no matter what the suffering or pain is, to see Christ formed in you. There is doubt in our lives when we come to Christ. There there are times when we stumble. There are times when we wonder, what is this Christianity all about? There are times when we just, you know, we get confused. We read the word and it's like, I'm not quite sure what he's saying. I'm not quite sure what to do and how to act. I understand those types of things. But Paul says, how I wish... (laughs) how I wish I could be present with you so that we could, we could talk about this face to face, how I wish I could change my tone of voice, that I wouldn't have to give you this rebuke, but we could look at the situation again, that we could go back <laughs> and, and, and review the gospel as I preached it to you, that I could, could be with you face to face, but for whatever reason, the providence of God does not allow him to do that at this time. But he is perplexed about them. He is fearful for them. Chapter 3, we read this verse 5. God provides you with the Spirit, and he works miracles among you. He reminded them, God in his Holy Spirit came to you and changed your lives. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, In Christ you have the blessings of Abraham. They, they've come upon you. And now, he says, I fear for you. Now I am perplexed for you. How do I win you back? This weekend, my wife and I have been at uh, South Carolina Comic Con, for some of you who know what that is. We've been surrounded by people in costumes of movie characters and video game characters and TV shows and things, and 90% of the people have no idea what they're supposed to be. But many of those people are wearing masks, and these masks are very elaborate. They've spent a lot of time on them, and you cannot see their mouths, their nose, and even the little isolates are behind veils and things like that. And they come over to our our game table where we're trying to show them how to play this game that we built. And we're trying to involve them, and you can see their hands moving as they flick the disc, and you can see them looking or turning their head. You can't see any emotion You can't see whether their eyes light up or whether they're crying or whether they're bored or whether they're happy. You can't see their facial expressions. And I think some of us as Christians, we wear our Christianity as a mask. It's outward. People see, but it never changes expression. It it never shows any emotion. It never shows anything to the world. Paul is saying it's not an outward thing. It's not a painted-on mask. It's not a pretend. It is an inner reality of Christ in the soul. Until Christ be formed in you, do we merely profess faith or do we actually live by faith? Jesus doesn't want to carry out a few alterations in our lives. He wants to transform our lives. Your life lived in conformity to his life. It's not a simple rearranging of your priorities. It is a game changer. It's not Please, it is not the insipid doctrine of what would Jesus do. I've thought about the ending. I've thought about how to wrap it up. And I came across this from the pen of John Eadie. When John Edy wrote, he interacts very, in a very technical manner with the Greek language, And with other commentators and pokes holes in their handling of the Greek. But every now and then, he comes out with a gem of meditation. And I would like to read it to you as we close. He wrote, for Christ is the one principle of life and holiness. Not Christ is contemplated from without, but Christ dwelling within by his Holy Spirit. Not speculation about his person or his doctrine. Nor vehement defense of orthodox belief. Not the knowledge of his character and work. Nor profession of faith in him with an external submission to the ordinances of the church. Very different, he says. Christ in them, abiding in them. His light in their minds his love in their hearts, his law in their conscience, his spirit, their formative impulse and power, his presence filling and assimilating their entire nature, and his image in visible shape and symmetry reproducing itself in their lives. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do again... Rejoice in the scriptures. Rejoice in the revelation you've given us through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That we might come to know you. That we might come to see you. But Father, we do ask, we plead that you would teach us, you would guide us, you would help us to walk in these things. To rejoice in them. To live them. That we might be salt and light, not just a mask. We ask that you would do these things for the building up of your church. We ask that you would do them for the glory of Christ. We ask that you would do them to proclaim your name and your glory throughout the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified.